Good morning. Um, yesterday, or the day before, uh, Carl Friston uh, was interviewed by Jordan Peterson. Uh, if you've watched, uh, listened to any of my podcasts, you know that I have a, an affinity for Carl Friston. I think that his free energy, um, his, uh, his theories of the mind, of consciousness... Uh, of anxiety, of meaning now, because they ended up talking a lot about meaning and value. I mean, obviously, uh, Jordan Peterson is, is obsessed with value and meaning at the, uh, at the expense of, of some other things. But, I mean, we all are, right? We, we pay attention to, uh, to what's salient to us. So long story short, I'm just going to share some notes. I actually wasn't too crazy. I did that one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So that's pretty good for me. I only did uh, twelve-ish pages uh, in point form, though. Uh, but long story short, uh, I can't even remember the title of the podcast. I'll have to look that up in a minute. Uh, it was Jordan Peterson and Carl Friston, obviously very excited, excited about free energy and surprise, uh, and for him to explain it. He did a very good job. I'll just explain the way I explain it. Uh, Carl Friston talked about free energy and surprise. What he means is free energy is when the mind is left idle. Uh, and it is a predictive engine, so it's constantly trying to predict the future. So if there's nothing to worry about, there's no danger, there's no um, complexity for it to solve, it will continue to parse data, memories, imagination even. So free energy is anxiety, it's cognition, it's planning, uh, it's uh, surmising, it's parsing data. So free energy is this idea that the mind produces free energy uh, by trying to predict the outcome of our actions or the future, uh, right? So free energy is the result of the brain, of the mind, of consciousness, of the self, trying to work out what's best for us to understand our universe, um, to make sense of our world around us and, and make sense of uh, what our best path might be, what we should do. So that's where surprise comes in. So surprise is the result. And obviously it's not going to be exactly as we predicted. If it was exactly as we predicted, I guess no surprise. But since the majority of uh, life does not come up the way we expect it to, um, right, we tend to be surprised. And we've discussed this before, this idea of Extreme surprise could be um, an, uh, an inability to accept reality. Right? I've talked about this before. Say somebody uh, who believes they're Napoleon Bonaparte, in, in spite of not being French, not being uh, alive in the 1800s, you know, all these different reasons. Right? Blindness uh, to um, reality and, and how it impacts us, right? Because... We have to accept reality for what it is because uh, otherwise we're not 
exercising our free will, nor are we even interacting with reality, life as it were. So they talk about affordance, affordances, uh, tools. Uh, what is it that we use that helps us navigate uh, our world? But I'll go one step further and say an affordance would also be what would allow us to reduce that surprise, reduce our suffering, and allow us to more rationally and calmly navigate our world. Right? So he talks about affordance and pattern. That's the mind, uh, the mind's job. Right? So it's looking for patterns, it's looking for affordance, ways to understand or easier ways to, uh, to navigate. Right? So perception as a tool. Right? So sense-making is what I wrote down. Right? Story is where pattern and purpose meet. That was Carl Friston. I love that. Right? Story is where pattern and purpose meet. Right? Because again, we're always trying to find our way in the universe. We should have a purpose or, uh, you know, we have a cause uh, with an intended effect or outcome. So micro stories are meaning, sense, meaning value, like Nietzsche. I talked about this, right? Um, uh, valuing is creating. Creating is is valuing. Meaning is something we create for ourselves. It's not just creating poetry or artwork. Uh, we, as Jung called it, the happy fiction, we create for ourselves these micro-stories, these uh, whys to every how or what. So he talks about concept and precept as story, as narrative is what I, I wrote down uh, because right? it's important, right? Our concept, our precept is all dependent on our purpose, our meaning, our understanding even. So we go on. And I love this quote. Narrative, the narrative world is laid on the conventional world. Right? So I talked about this a little bit before. Um, the Prasangika Sotentrika quandary, this idea, is the conventional world real or is it Maya? And I love how the Chittamatrans or uh, the end result where they decided to agree and disagree that the world is conventional and we interact with it, therefore real in that sense, but it's also Maya or illusion. So it's unreal in that sense. So it is both, but it's neither it's something else. This is the Chattiscoti, the, the Tetralemma. Right? Feynman said that a path with the least obstacles is what we're trying to achieve. Not that different from Buddhism, which is to reduce our suffering. Right? So active inference. I love this. They mention it. It harkens back to Jung. Right? Active inference could be active imagination. Right? Inference is just drawing conclusions. I mean, we use our imagination, our cognition, and our memory together to make inference. So we choose our stories. Again, Nietzsche. Meaning, value. We choose our value. We place our value and we create the stories, the narrative. Right? So it's sentient behavior. This is, I guess, uh, what we are and who we are and what we do. Right? So we commit to this behavior, right? And I've talked about this before. 
no system is wanting. The only thing that is missing is our commitment to the system. I have a friend uh, who, uh, well, I'll give a better example. Uh, a cognitive scientist who's trying to create a religion that's not a religion. So rather than finding meaning in a system that is already pre-existing, for some reason, rather than seeing the, the participants as having been lacking, he sees the protocol as being lacking. So these people that, instead of wrapping themselves up in whatever they hold to be true and they're committed and have confidence in, and executing, right, this Kriya or Karma Yoga uh, action, they constantly try to find a system within the system, right? I mean, I have a buddy who's finding pieces of Buddhism that works for him, but he wants to add it to the pieces of Stoicism that work for him. And, and here I am sitting, reading The Ascent of Mount Carmel by um, St. John of the Cross and uh, St. Theresia of Avila. And I see the exact same lessons within it as in the, uh, the Ahura Mazda of uh, Zoaster or the Dhammapada or the Bhagavad Gita. Um, it's just perception and it's narrative. So unlike me being open to reading what these stories are trying to tell me, many people are already writing their own narrative and their story and writing off many of these affordances or these tools, upaya, uh, as we call it in um, Sanskrit. It just means, uh, you know, a tool, skillful means, uh, efficient means. Uh, so active infer inference, right? This is our sentient behavior. Sense-making or valuing. I'd go one step further and say trust. This is important, right? This is that commitment to this behavior, commitment uh, to sense-making and valuing, right? So value what matters, right? This is important. They mentioned, right, again, value and meaning over and over and over again. Then they mentioned change blindness, right? And for me, they didn't get into the important stuff. What I would have highlighted is how important um, place is. I talked about Basho from the Kyoto School of Existential Philosophy. Basho being the place of action and uh, you being the warrior ready to take action, right? So change blindness, they laughed about how people don't pay attention because, oh, well, you know, a student's a student. But this is what I've been talking about. I argue, because of being a dyslexic, you can't fool me like that. Right? Because I don't make those sorts of blindness. I'll make blindness uh, errors in other, uh, in, other, um, in other areas. But I will unlikely miss the person because of uh, voice, uh, like all sorts of different things that I pay attention to in my attempt uh, to make sense. My sense-making um, activity includes paying attention to all this because as a dyslexic, I don't have the same, uh, what would you call it, uh, reduction filter on my um, somatic experience. Like I have everything just, you know, heaped upon me and I have to parse it to figure out what is salient for me rather than what they were talking about is how so many people will be blind 
to new information because they didn't realize it was pertinent. So I fail just as much as the next person because I'll have too much data to have to parse. Did I pull out the most salient um, tidbits versus someone, uh, say you're neurotypical, who won't notice that they exchanged a student. This is this changeable, I forgot. I don't know if you've watched the podcast, but the experiment was a tourist on a college campus gets stopped by a student uh, who's asking directions. So they, um, uh, serotipless, never mind, they sneakily exchange the students without the uh, tourist noticing. And the majority of people didn't notice the exchange of the students. I argue that's just a failure of our higher order thinking. I think we can train ourselves to be mindful more often uh, in more situations. Uh, I mean, think about it. It's it's not like he's just wandering through the courtyard anymore. He could easily bring his his uh, cognition to bear uh, in this situation because, you know, the student's asking for directions and, you know, neither here nor there. So uh, we talk about needing flexible micro-stories. We used to model, uh, we use them to model other situations, right? Because that's important, right? This is why I think it's important that we study our mythology and our philosophy as well as our religion because these flexible micro-stories, or call the Bible maybe a macro-story, but within them are multiple micro-stories that we can use to map upon our experience, right? Flexibility in dealing with outcomes. So if you consciously choose to limit these affordances, that's what we'll call mythology. That's what we'll call the Bible. It's just another affordance for us to use to navigate our experience, right? Uh, then there's a mention about chimp dominance. I thought that was kind of neat uh, how he mentioned it's not true that it's strictly physical, that it can be based on power, reproduction, social structure, and play. I add in the play. But in in reality, you know, it can be uh, an alpha male that's not the largest if he's allied with a large female or he's good at peace or he's good good leader. Or he's he's good at um, maintaining or supporting the, the community, not unlike um, humans where, uh, you know, mating isn't strictly about looks or, or um, uh, means. It can be something as simple as voice or uh, humor or even outlook, attitude, right? If you have a positive attitude, that can trump so many things. Same as having a negative attitude. I mean, that can, that can derail just about everything. Right? So uh, our job is to minimize predictive error. That was Friston saying that. So don't forget... Our job isn't strictly to predict the outcome, but it's constantly trying to update that predictive engine, that is the mind, so that it does a better job the next time. That's why I mentioned that idea that uh, we're supposed to use these flexible micro-stories as a model for future uh, situations, right? But then there's a mention, right? Why not maximize predictive error uh, in an attempt to, as Jung talked about, uh, using sense and nonsense as a way to navigate our reality. Uh, They go on and talk about how entropy, allow entropy to stress us to grow. That's what I I meant by the maximizing predictive error. 
it's like a David Goggins idea that if we're not constantly being challenged, we're actually atrophying. We're actually losing skills. We're losing this affordance that we've built up, right? All of our affordances, but our, our skill. We're losing our skill in navigating our world if we're not constantly building and maintaining that, right? So social interactions are essential to this sense-making. And I argue as is challenging. Challenging oneself, challenging one's uh, perceptions, and, and uh, yeah. So there's the paradox they mention, right? We seek out novelty, entropy. Yet, how does that balance with the fact that we're attempting to minimize error? Right? We're looking for order in chaos. Well, my answer is that the human mind doesn't see order in chaos, we're a sense-making organism. So we can see into uh, entropy, chaos, and make patterns, make sense for us. There is no order in chaos. We just see the chaos. It's literally not that dissimilar from um, uh, seeing, say, faces in clouds or on rocks. Uh, anthropomorphism. Uh, is something similar to this. We're seeing value and meaning where there is none. Uh, so he says here, so this is an attempt uh, to reduce uh, our expected surprise and uncertainty. I mean, that's pretty obvious. We talked about this earlier. But this is where it becomes uh, interesting because anxiety is uncertainty or better yet later, they mention that anxiety could be considered unresolved uh, uncertainty. Unresolved uncertainty. Right? So arguably there's where we see uh, cognitive-based therapy. It didn't work in my opinion as well as it could because they didn't explain this to the patients. But if they were to explain that being certain is a way to stop anxiety in its tracks, that could come a long way. Remember I talked about this impermanence thing, right? Nothing is permanent, not even the individual. So when you teach this Buddhist truth to someone in mindful-based uh, cognitive training, it changes everything. Same can be said when none of them train uh, these truths of inherent suffering, sense-making, and impermanence, uh, the nature of self, obviously. Uh, without teaching these truths, you're lost. Arguably, you're just aggravating your anxieties. And what they mentioned is uh, the uh, symptoms of depression actually just encourage and reinforce these, uh, these negative um, inferences, right? These, these negative beliefs, these fantasies. Uh, so he goes on to talk about um, epistemic affordances, right? Uh, novelty helps reduce uncertainty, right? So we use novelty to reduce certainty because, again, we're not always applying meaning and, and value. So we let novelty, If how many of us love novelty? Because it is already valued because it is novel. Same idea of an epistemic affordance. This idea that we might have a cheat sheet or a spreadsheet 
of, of um, expectations as well as uh, reactions and outcomes. Right? So they talk about... Uh, oh, that's interesting. So they talked about how chimps resolve surprise, that they ask uh, those in the environment, uh, narratives uh, make you... I like that. My job is to make you like me or me like you. This idea of tribalism. I would actually argue that's kind of awkward. I would change that from make you like me or make me like you to see in you, right? The, the Isha Upanishad, uh, Sutra 6. To see in you what I share and to see in me what you share. That's truly when tribalism becomes a shortcut to trust. When you no longer highlight, in fact, I just recently did a course where that's pretty much all he did. Uh, he took uh, the lessons from one of these uh, by my course guys and he took uh, essentially Rick Hansen's solution called hardwiring happiness. So realizing we have a negativity bias, uh, highlight the positive to overcome that negativity bias. He put those two together and produced his own protocol, which obviously can work for him. This idea of using these narratives, these micro stories, um, that's how tribalism can be uh, an avenue to trust. It's not a fictional account, right? Keep in mind, that's not what we're doing here. It's the opposite. Narrative theory is to attempt to find the most apt narrative, the most apropos, the most reasonable, most functional, most likely, all that jazz. It's not to reinforce fantasy like we see so often today. That's what I've mentioned before, this idea that two and two is four, but sometimes two and two uh, just needs to equal five. Right? This is this idea that, what Jung said, if, if what I used to hold to be true uh, doesn't guide me as well as what uh, is considered an error, right? if an error guides me better than what I used to hold is true, then I'll be guided by the error. So it's just being open. It's this flexible micro stories, right? You can't apply previous experience 100% to the next experience because you've changed yourself. Uh, who was it that said that? Uh, Epictetus, uh, that no two men uh, ever cross the same river because it's constantly flowing. But the story can go one step deeper to say that there's never the same person that crosses the same river. Because the person that crossed the river yesterday is not the same person that might cross it today because of this constant epistemic affordances. We're either changing for benefit or changing uh, for negative. Either way, we're constantly changing. Right? Uh, so I do like that, right? Make you like me or uh, make me like you in the sense to see in you what we share or even better, to see in you uh, what there is to understand you better. Right? So we're aligning ourselves. There's Jung's individuation. 
So as I've said before, not only by seeing what's in you that I either appreciate or don't understand, what have you, it allows you to ideate yourself, individuate yourself. And I've talked about this that uh, in the book uh, Austin Kleon's uh, uh, trilogy. This idea of fake it till you make it is not in the sense of a negative. It's this idea of try to embody the the optimum or your idol, whatever it is you're trying to achieve, uh, right? Moonshot goals in the failing to achieve your ultimate or your perfection or whatever you set. It's in the milieu that you find yourself. So it's the, the intervening uh, moments between uh, struggle and uh, failure, success. It's, it's in the in-between that we actually are able to find ourselves and learn who we are. It's, it's really not that different from the, the via negativo by uh, proving what God is not uh, to confirm what it is. I argue the Canadian identity is very similar. Because the Canadian identity is not so simply defined uh, that in reality most Canadians have to define who they are by what they're not. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, I'm not that. This idea of, well, aligning ourselves, right? I love that expression, right? You're lining up who you are, what you are, why you are, right? So aligning our view of the world is not that different from the aligning our view of ourselves because to navigate and understand and make sense of our world, we have to make sense of ourselves. To, to understand what we have to bring to bear and what we must bring to bear uh, is not that different from knowing what we have for obstacles or challenges in front of us. Right, so, uh, <sighs> well, again, I just mentioned that, right, this idea of aligning our worldview is also trying to work to reduce suffering. I mentioned that a little earlier. Uh, novelty uh, and uh, information seeking without surprise. And I mentioned the self and the other, right? Right, this idea, and he mentioned this, finding not like me uh, surprise. I, I do believe, I already hit on this, this idea that a big part of this that they didn't hit on is the ideation or the individuation process of, the, of you to, to learn who and what you truly are. Uh, because then they go on and talk about uh, Piaget uh, and social convention. And they talk about how... Uh, the way we interact with each other is based uh, over time. Uh, so literally when you're interacting with an individu individual, you assume that you're going to interact with them again in the future. So essentially you're, you're protecting your future self and you're developing a long-term relationship even though this is a single interaction. It's kind of neat. Uh, it's called multiple iteration, I think is what he called it. I didn't mark down exactly what he called it. Uh, and then they mentioned uh, that, according to Piaget, it's not till you're three years old that you are able to share play voluntarily. This idea of having a set uh, identity or, or you've 
begun to align your view of the world and yourself enough that, as he says, you're able to to share without risking, I guess, your own identity, this idea of a self and the other. So understanding this in role play, because you have to understand, so the way he explained it is, um, you integrate their identity and the mutual understanding in role play, right? So it's both two individuals, but then you come together and you, you have like a shared identity, not to mention if there's any role play involved, uh, fantasy. Uh, there's a, an incredibly complex um, uh, subcurrent of, of understanding here that these kids just innately are understanding the self and the other and it's just a beautiful thing, right? So he called it this, um, uh, well, they, they have to share the same, uh, or share or uh, same uh, perceptual principles to achieve this. So he calls it shared perceptual reality. Right? So shared emotional response or even influence, like I mentioned before, that therapists actually have to watch and guard their own um, uh, emotional state, their emotional regulation, because their state can influence the patient, their patient state can influence them, so it's a big part of the therapy. So the same goes for our interaction with each other. Right? So he says these shared states uh, also exist in a movie theater. I think that's quite interesting how we take on uh, kind of like a universal, right? Because you behave... Uh, again, this idea of respect. You don't know everyone in the theater, but you won't, most people won't uh, make a ton of noise as to disturb uh, their experience, not to mention, you know, laughing out of turn, talking out of turn, but the same idea of a shared experience, right? Shared states, right? this idea of the self into the other. Right? That's how we understand. And so I mentioned this uh, idea of the externalized self, uh, from Marsha McLuhan. And I wonder if we have begun to externalize ourselves so much that we're having a hard time recollecting ourselves, right? We're having a hard time uh, with individuation because we have, what you call it, like, um, we have uh, splintered our identities, ourselves, to such a point where it almost seems impossible to be able to to consolidate uh, into a whole uh, constructive, uh, concentric, meaning everything together that works, seems almost impossible. It seems like we're almost, on a daily basis, struggling to understand who we are and thereby uh, fail to understand our environment. This, this joke I meant before, again, Marshall McLuhan, he said that, uh, the next generation struggles to understand the grammar of the previous generation, as does the previous generation. Uh, they struggle to understand the grammar of this new generation. Now, I argue we've come to a point where each successive generation, the grandparents, the parents, and the children are all struggling to find their grammar in this world because so much is in flux that we're all barely even getting by because we haven't um, aligned our view of this world. 
they don't have to strictly align, but we ourselves have to understand how our place and the system and all this stuff works together. If you live in a universe where you believe that 2 and 2 equals 5, but deny 2 and 2 equals 4, then your worldview will never align uh, to an extent that you can interact with other individuals. So arguably, you risk your own identity by limiting your interaction, never mind your endorsement of fantasy, right? We'll get to that when he mentions uh, depression, right? So shared narrative without damage. This is a theory of mind, right? You are like me. Empathy. How would you feel applied to the other? Very important. This is this glimpse of equanimity that we talk about in Buddhism. They mention again Piaget, right? This newborn, their selfhood uh, develops uh, via babbling or say rattling a toy well, it's me making that noise i did that this is how we we develop this individuation process over time but many of us don't realize that this is a constant ever battle because the self is constantly evolving just as in buddhism uh, Jung explained this idea that every interaction produces a new idea of who we are Therefore, our previous self is not the same to our current self, right? It's not an extreme difference, but it's enough that we have to constantly guard that we're working towards being better, right? Uh, let's see here, this connection, right? Self-created by interaction, right? This experience builds the selfhood. So as I say, if you don't develop an interactive view of the world that includes the self and the other, then you risk your entire selfhood, right? Uh, they go on to talk about two separates sharing a whole, right? The shared narrative. But they also mention, uh, for, forget to mention, that the same can be said about pieces of me, right? So within you, are individual pieces. This is a separate uh, uh, idea, this, uh, this part theory. I'm just saying pieces. But you need to integrate all of the pieces, all of the parts of the self. That's individuation, that's know thyself, right? But the same can be said when you interact with others, right? You're, you're balancing their pieces and your pieces and our pieces, right? This is the trust that we were talking about, the shared narrative, tribalism, trust, it all fits together. The meaning, value, creating, we're creating ourselves, we're creating a shared narrative, we're, you know, it really is funny how close it all is together. So then they go on and they mention dopamine. Dopamine uh, is responsible for a shared vision, creation, collaboration, um, in a sense that we're rewarded by the system, right? Collaboration is rewarded by dopamine. So he says, uh, phenomenologically, it just feels good, right? We, we grow the success. We grow with success, uh, and both of which uh, makes us feel better, right? So again, 
dopamine being important in the sense making and the exchange. So really, uh, desperately important for our understanding of who we are as individuals, but also important uh, in the interaction with other individuals. So we, uh, they go on to talk about pursuing a narrative, a, di uh, a didactic, a context. I don't know what I will. My spelling's so terrible, I lost that completely. Man. So learning from novelty is an epistemic affordance. I mean, that makes sense, this idea that um, learning from novelty alone but at the same time, right, that'd be a negative, uh, right, it's epistemic, you'd be frozen. But at the same idea, it's a fixed affordance in the sense that if we didn't learn from novelty, we would never grow. So it's almost um, a limiting idea, right, that, oh, novelty can teach, that's all, right, because not all. But if we don't adopt this trust in novelty, then we will miss out on all opportunity to grow because really, arguably, all opportunities for growth lie in the novel, right? Because what we hold to be familiar is not something that's going to help us grow and learn, right? So novelty is a bonus. Uh, instantiating. Instantiating by agreement. Well... So novelty, not all novelty is good. So this case, big words for no reason, it seems. It's just that when we realize that this novelty is, is a lesson or it's helpful or it gives us a deeper understanding, that's when we go, yes, okay, there you go. There's the value. So they go on and talk about minimizing uncertainty by affordance or I say acceptance. Right? So this idea of affordance in this case is kind of like Jung's archaic man. So he's using the term in the sense that if you don't understand or if you need some help with some uncertainty, you can use some of these uh, arguably epistemic affordances. You can use your, your meaning, right? Your why for anyhow. And they go on and talk about the brain. Uh, they have a biological connection to meaning and value, right? This is the dopamine and serotonin system. I mean, I keep saying this. It's meaning. It's value. It's, it's Zarathustra from Nietzsche. It's the Upanishads. It's Jung's Liber Novus. I mean, they keep telling us these simple truths that it's meaning, it's value, it's creation. Yet we keep missing uh, these simple truths. Again, dopamine is reward and reinforcement. It can be artificial like cocaine, right, or amphetamines. Friston says uh, addiction as a parasite, right? Oh, hijacking um, are like hijacking the, uh, the proper uh, path or even choice, rewarding to seek novelty, right, these new states, this is important, but it's funny, if it's rewarding to seek new states, why are we so hesitant, and why do so many of us need psychedelics to be able to break open into these new states, right, it's fear of novelty, even when it happens to be something we know uh, that we have to work within, right, so this idea of resolved uncertainty, 
right? Certainty is dopamine, right? So the opposite would be uncertainty, would be anxiety. And the reason why so many people are low with the dopamine, and I mean, I read this, it was just a, a little post on social media by a doctor who treats trauma. And he literally said this himself. He says, is it any wonder why so many people with trauma have addictions? It's not about being predisposed to addictions. It's about um, avoidance or, um, I mean, you name it. It's, it's an attempt to console or to avoid what we know needs to be confronted because a lot of uh, the traumatic patients literally just need to work with this narrative theory and understand that you're not, uh, you know, you're not the, uh, the demon in your story, right? But you're also not the hero. Not until you stand up to those demons, right? You can be the wounded hero, but not until you get out there and, and start challenging these, uh, these negative narratives, right? Uh, so he says something special about uh, dopamine. It's a neuromodulator, right? It greases the pathways. It says it's a chemical uh, that turns on or sensitizes us to these meanings, these values, these uh, uh, opportunities. So he says a role is to sensitize messages from one system to elicit a response in another system, right? So it's kind of like um, uh, an air gap system in computers, right? So it's, it's an attempt to, to influence other uh, systems of the body uh, that they may not have a direct connection to, right? And they say abnormality... Uh, I wonder in drugs or trauma as well, not just drugs, right? These can mess with these systems. Right? So he goes on and talks about depressive cognition. Normal being, I'm having an off day. We'll work through this, right? You will learn from an experience, but you won't uh, catastrophize, right? Whereas the depressed cognition is, oh my God, uh, it's terrible. You know, I'm 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 horrible. I always make mistakes. Right? I call it these doomers, uh, uh, catastrophizers. Right? So here's a quote. It says, "Attach to the negative prediction and does not value the positive, both past, present, and predictions." Right? So this is an update to the self, the self and others. Right? If you attach to the negative and does not value the positive, either the past, the present, or even in prediction, that's where you fail, because you're just catastrophizing, and you're not even, you're actually even minimizing the positive when there is. And so they mentioned that rule of three, uh, when stuff goes wrong, right, you ignore it, uh, you mark it, uh, right? Uh, and then the third time, it's, well, something's going on here, what, what should we be fixing? A great question is, what am I missing? They say depression as a collapse of value and meaning. Right? Upward error. Because they say higher the social status, 
they are the resistant, more resistant they are to anomalies. So similar to the body, right? So the higher up, uh, the more valued these um, ideas might be, the more resistant they would be to being updated, right? This idea of feeling safe. Uh, I had this uh, idea of a movable safety. And it looks like I was 100% correct that the biggest part of childhood trauma or abuse or anxiety or depression seems to be developing something that I call a movable safety. So not a safe place, because many of us don't have even a safe place in our minds because of trauma, but a movable safety. I guess what I call movable safety could be very similar to, you know, emotional regulation, right? Trying to be within your, uh, your window of tolerance, as they might call it. And so uh, women are more sensitive to errors uh, and negativity than men. Uh, they try to explain that as being, you know, just uh, nurturers, right? Frequency of entropy and the likelihood of depression and how they're related, right? So the more chaotic your life is, uh, much more likely you'll be depressed, right? Because it becomes near impossible, I guess, to apply meaning to a ton of entropy, right? I mean, actually, I see it with so many people. Just the other day, I was walking past the school. There's a lady who volunteers uh, to hold the signs as kids come and go. And I just said, oh, it's like a cacophony of sounds here in the morning. It's just crazy. And she said, oh, I love it. And I said, you must have ADHD. <laughs> and she's like, yep, probably do. It's this idea of being comfortable in chaos. I made this joke before that over the past couple of years, it's the traumatic that seemed to have come out of this the least um, uh, impacted, mainly because chaos is our bag, baby. Uh, so throw a little extra chaos into the mix, not really a big deal. I think it has to do with your hope, right? Because it can be as chaotic as you'd like. Viktor Frankl explained this. But if you have a sense of hope, Right? You can manage almost any uh, anyhow or what. Right? So they go on to talk about machine learning can learn from the predictive coding uh, rubric uh, of this idea. Uh, it tries to explain from a top-down uh, data predictive is predictive errors. Okay, so the way this works, he calls it a rubric because it's the way our, our, our system works. So we're not that different from machine learning or an algorithm. So we just run like automatically until we run into something that is out of the normal, right? Or a predictive error. So if we can explain away the predictive error as it comes up the chain of cognition, right? The top level being the most advanced and the most uh, inflexible to change. So as it goes up the chain, uh, we try to find meaning in it or explain it. What do we value? Can we learn from? And so if we're, we're, again, this idea of unresolved uncertainty, as it makes it way, its way up the chain, it adds to this state of disquiet, as it were, right? The more uh, prediction errors we have, because again, we question our own intuition. That's not an uncommon thing. Uh, but if our perception of reality becomes... Uh, in question, that's that's pretty challenging to both uh, how we see the world and how we see ourselves, right? So resistance uh, values placed on belief, 
And I'll quote Nietzsche when I say that convictions are worse than lies. And then they go on and talk about predictive coding, right? Me and my world, meaning and value, right? I call the salience or place, this basho. But I go one step further and I actually bring uh, to light uh, what I call chitamatra, this mind matrix. That's exactly what this rubric is. It's this mind matrix. And I go one step further, I could call it even chitti matri. So like the mind mother or the mother mind. Right? That's this connecting spirit. And what is it? It's interaction with the universe. Because they talk about how important it is to get out there and do this. So it's karma yoga, uh, kriya. It's to go out and interact. And this is why depression is so challenging because it, it actually helps to reinforce these errors as truth via catastrophizing or keeping us separate from the world, right? Because we uh, reinforce these fears. Uh, so they went on and they talked about the excitability of the neuromodulators, right? Presence, place, uh, Basho from Nishitani. So I'll put in uh, trauma and brain fog, right? So if we're nervous, if we're challenged, if it's too much information at once, this can cause the same sort of brain fog that many people with trauma can experience in this same sort of stressful situation. But stress itself, I argue, can cause the same symptoms of brain fog, right? Uh, so this uh, same um, excitability or stress uh, kicking us out of our um, window of tolerance can also be from uh, not placing the correct salience. Um, when we realize that, we're like, wow, geez, I wasn't paying attention, or wow, well, that was the wrong thing to uh, concentrate on. So again, they mentioned this higher level beliefs are recalcitrant or stubborn, right? Uh, the higher level beliefs, again, in this case, it can be God or meaning at its core, can be some of the most recalcitrant because, again, these are some of the hardest uh, to, to suss and also some of the most arbitrary when it comes to salience. So it makes sense. But it says uh, to listen to the lower one to be better. Is, and I ask a question, is mental illness an error in this rubric, in this system? Right, this system of belief updating or validating is it uh, an error in this uh, coding? But so we move on, and I love this because personal uh, story on this acetylcholine talk about updating one's um, system. So I was experimenting with all these different diets: the elimination diets, uh, autoimmune immune protocol, paleo. I tried them all. Uh, and I even tried veganism, ve uh, vegetarianism, and even tried veganism. Right? And it's a form of elimination, but also a meaning, a value. But what I ended up figuring out is it actually, the stricter vegan I became, the worse my inflammation became. And with a little bit of research, I found out that acetylcholine is incredibly important to inflammation. But guess what? Also about our interaction with the world and meaning-making and all this jazz. But lo and behold, I even went to the doctor, and of course he chuckled laughing at me because I, I explained to him why I was trying veganism, uh, but he still laughed at me. He said, oh, are you still doing the vegan? Are you still vegan? I'm like, no, no, I had to cut that back because I needed my acetylcholine. 
And that shut him up from his making a joke. And he actually was super surprised. And I think, wow, you really know a lot of this stuff. And he actually literally said, you should write a book about this stuff. Mainly because I have done more for my HS disease than he's probably ever seen. Because I haven't seen patients go from stage three uh, to where, I mean, it would be hard for your average doctor to be able to diagnose me with HS nowadays if it weren't for the scar tissue, right? As compared to the dermatologist that I had, I had to wait years to see uh, a proper doctor, the dermatologist. Uh, this dermatologist didn't ask me a thing about myself, anything about my life. He didn't know any of the other diseases that I had. All he knew was a referral uh, from my doctor for what he thought was HS because, well, I went to the eMERGE multiple times and finally had a derm con consult at the, the emergency room. And he's the one who mentioned uh, HS, so that's how he was finally told what it was. But because it was so bad, he referred me to a dermatologist and got me in pretty quickly. Uh, but that was after I finally showed him probably one of the worst. Uh, it was a, a six or eight inch sinus tract that was connecting about a half dozen different uh, sites that were all troublesome. And it was constantly discharging, uh, constantly bleeding to the point where I showed him I had to keep um, a bandana in place because I just there weren't bandages big enough, uh, nor could I handle the bandages because of the damage it would have done to the skin. So I just kept bandanas on top. Um, right? So refer me to this dermatologist who didn't ask me anything about my personal background. I said this, that uh, Dr. Gabriel Mate is pushing how important this is and how little they do. Exactly. He didn't ask me anything about anything else. Uh, he didn't even uh, do a physical uh, inspection. He was literally going to write down, yes, it's HS, and send me on my way. He didn't even check my body. And yet tells me, though, you can't be disabled. No, there's no way that it's disabled. But worse yet, when I finally got the sheet of what my diagnosis was, after having made him look at all the different spots on my body, he still listed me as stage one. And so I had to go back in and show them, because they weren't going to let me see him, but I had to show them that, look, the brochure that you gave me says very clearly that stage one is without sinus tracts. But the doctor wrote a letter diagnosing me with stage one HS. So he said, how does that reconcile with the fact that I was referred here for an 8-inch sinus tract in a very sensitive spot? And that's only one of my uh, connected areas. So, like, really, who really is the person that needs to be checking these higher orders? So there's a great example of one of these high-level beliefs being recalcitrant. This doctor believes, because he's a doctor, he knows better than everyone, even though his own brochure contradicted him. So I actually had to get upset with this doctor and show him, your own brochure shows that you're wrong about this. And all he did was update it with a little initial on in the paper, which I know he's going to deny. So once again, here we are with professionals showing the failure of that Dunning-Kruger, right? 
He's a dermatologist. How many HS patients does he see in a, in, in a daily basis, right? How much time does he spend uh, learning and dealing with uh, this disease? Well, I got news for you. I spend uh, nearly all day with it because, for example, today uh, I actually had to uh, uh, empty um, a sinus tract site. Even though I don't have a serious amount of, uh, you know, disease problem, the problem I have is I have so much old scar tissue that if I don't regularly go around cleaning up all these different areas in these scar tissues, it can actually become a giant cyst like the old uh, one. So I live with this every day, even though I've gotten as close to healing as one can with this disease. Right. So in that case, I always thought it was me because doctors kept telling me, ah, it's just in your head, it's just in your head, it's just in your head. So I, of course, kept changing my higher level beliefs. But then when I realized that maybe it wasn't me, believe it or not, I didn't become recalcitrant on everything. I just became more curious and less judgmental. When I realized that doctors are just as likely to be wrong about even the most simple of things, that made me realize that why would I be tough on myself if I make a mistake or I have a hard time understanding something? It's ridiculous, right? So that's my higher level belief that changed in that doctor's office. I realized that that doctor should have updated his higher level belief that he was 100% wrong and should have apologized and fixed it because he was impinging my healing and my medical, like he went against his actual oath to do no harm and he was doing harm. But I did update my higher level beliefs in this case to realize that maybe I wasn't as, you know, behind the eight ball when it came to these things. Maybe I understand it better than I ever gave myself credit I've said this before, that I think we as human creatures can achieve infinitely more than we ever give ourselves credit. And this was an example. When I realized something as simple as his own brochure contradicted his diagnosis, and even he didn't stop and go, uh, oh, yeah. It took me going, you do realize how ridiculous that looks, right? I was referred here for an eight-inch sinus tract and you sent me out of here with the, the diagnosis of stage one which clearly says in your brochure no sinus tracts so i know for a fact he didn't update his higher level beliefs but that changed my life going forward right because meaning and value Right, this paradox in prediction that they mentioned, this Franz Deval, I'm going to have to look that up. I wonder if it applies in this, uh, in this place. I love this idea of the paradox of prediction. Um, I don't know if I have the concept of Franz Deval's idea of paradox and prediction. I just love the paradox in prediction. The fact that we tend to always be wrong but if we see the meaning and the value in the, the mistake, right? this saying that I stole from the TV show 1883, you're either winning or you're learning. 
So that's the paradox in prediction. Right? So even if we're wrong a majority of the time and seldom right a minority of the time, we can still place value and meaning in the outcomes. All right, well, we can continue on <coughs> to one of my favorite uh, uh, quotes. Was we dumbed down our perception of reality. I love that because it fits with, uh, remember the podcast I did when I was talking about uh, Gul uh, Dobin, uh, the, was she a neuroscientist meets philosopher out of Netherlands, I think? But don't quote me on that. Uh, Gul, G-U-L, uh, Dobin, uh, D-O-B-I-N. It's not hard to remember because it's not that different from uh, Doblin, uh, the director of maps, or whatever you'd call him, co-founder. They were on that uh, TV show together with uh, Reggie Watts, talking about psychedelics and the mind. So she was talking about how psychedelics remove the reducing valve on our perception of reality. Uh, it's not unlike what I've talked about as a dyslexic, as a neurodivergental. Um, we have a heightened sense of perception, like I'll feel the, the hairs on my leg uh, brushing on my clothes. Like most people don't understand the the dislike for tags and shirts wasn't strictly because of right you know it being scratchy that's what we explain it as but it's almost like a hair shirt to the neurodivergional because they can't tune that out remember i mentioned how the fan in an exam room was i couldn't tune that out i had to welcome it before i could make any sort of <laughs> headway uh, to writing tests, like I could write tests like nobody's business now, but back then I couldn't. And believe it or not, it wasn't my uh, knowledge or understanding of the the topic. It actually ended up being uh, my lack of focus because of all of that sensory data coming in. Right, so not that different from uh, the shirt tag, right, uh, or underwear tags. You will constantly be harassed by that throughout the day, right? If it's a hair shirt to, to, uh, for self-flagellation, that's perfect. You want to be constantly reminded. Uh, kind of the way I've explained about wearing um, mala around my neck. Right? It was uh, to remind myself constantly, right? privately, right? because on the wrist, everyone sees it. Around the neck, I could wear it under my shirt. Nobody would think it would, was anything. But for me... Right, I'd catch a waft of sandalwood, or I'd hear them, you know, make a sound, uh, right, or just even feel it on my skin, or I mean, even something as silly as pulling a hair. It's still reminding you. It's that idea of a hair shirt, if it's productive. Once it starts to impinge on your everyday life, well, then that's not a beneficial thing, right? So the tags for the autistic was definitely about. Um, that's all they could fixate on, right? So even though their reducing valve was uh, turned much wider open than the average person, they were getting much more of this sensory data, right? This idea of, uh, you know, feeling colors. It's not that far removed. Once you start to ramp up that sense of perception, you start to get these different experiences, this... this uh, novelty can become what we used to hold as fantasy 
an experience that goes beyond the explainable. Only because, and here's the next um, quote from the podcast, relationships are based on iteration. Right? So I've talked about the Good Friday experiments before. They took a bunch of priests, they gave them psychedelics and said, hey, what'd you experience? No surprise, they had religious experiences. Because we are iterations of our relationships. What we are is what we've experienced. What we, the personas we embody because we've developed them, because of what people expect or what we want them to think. It's the iteration, the interaction, right? Uh, Oh, so once again, we're going back to Piaget, talking about how we're designed to meet over and over again. So we tend to maintain, it makes sense, maintain a sense of persona, of self. Uh, we try to make it uh, lasting throughout the ages, <clears throat> mainly because of, partially because of that, not mainly, partially because of that. If people expect us to be a certain way, do we maintain that way of being so as not to disappoint them? Uh, so uh, for me, I made a note about equanimity with this, right? So is this proof? This is what Jordan Peterson said. So he, he mentioned uh, we're designed to meet over and over again. He considers that proof that we're uh, being, searching for order. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but the idea that it kind of proves that we're magnanimous, we're compassionate beings, right? Peace, not war, help, not hurt, uh, because we have compassion by the nature of our interaction. That's weird, I know. What I mean by that is, if every time we interact with someone, we by, by, by default, by habit, by innate quality, um, expect that we shall run into them again. So we treat them as if this is a relationship, even in our first. And you'll experience it yourself. right? You have to be actively self-centered and toxic to not feel a sense... I joke about the lack of compassion to another human being That's that's been uh, from the... Uh, I call it the Xbox Live effect. So when we went from interacting in person, seeing the human being, and actually being uh, uh, affected by hormones because of the person being in front of us. When we went to online interactions, this avatar experience, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of an oxymoron, a cliche, because avatar was meant to be the emanation of a god, whereas most people, uh, their avatar on the internet is the opposite of a god. But that's neither here nor there. So fast forward uh, to gaming, right? So now we're interacting almost in real time. But LAN parties used to be in person. You'd all come together and play video games in the same room. And when that expanded from being, um, I guess you'd say in real life, to being a virtual, right? When, when networking got to the point where you didn't have to have a local area network, you could have a wider area network uh, where you could actually connect via the internet. Uh, 
the initial generation, Gen X, of people who had experienced this still remembered that the avatar they were playing against was a human being on the other end. So this is where the Xbox Live effect comes in. So what happened is, uh, working at the bank, I actually began to have friends of different generations. I had friends that were school friends, and I had older friends. I didn't have any younger friends uh, when I had moved down south. So when I developed new friends because of the bank, I actually developed friends based on interest and not age, right? Because when you're in school, it's a fellow age person. Um, when it was interest for me when I was young, um, it was usually somebody older, because, right? you know, <clears throat> when, when I was a child, I left childish things uh, behind. Um, or when I became, whatever that quote is, right? When I, when I became an adult, I left childish things behind. It uh, just happened all of a sudden. I just, I'm not uh, criticizing, uh, enjoying G.I. Joe's. Just all of a sudden, uh, my interest switched uh, to being out of my, a few years older than my interest. But working at the bank, I'd actually began to develop friends in different ages. So I actually had friends of different ages who had kids of different ages. And so what I noticed was if I had just been, you know, me, I probably wouldn't have noticed <clears throat> the change because the people that I interacted with we may have done the 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 sheep talking as we call it back and forth but again it was a joking around a thing fast forward to some of these people that I knew that had kids that had only been raised in these social media environments and they had no idea or just no perception or concept of the idea that these people were human beings on the other end of the digital line, um, they just lost all humanity to them. And, and they were just horrible, horrible people to each other. And so this is what I call the Xbox Live effect. So instead of interacting with an online avatar as if it's a human being on the other side, having compassion, I mean, arguably like being on the telephone with someone, you don't know it's a human being, it's kind of like Nietzsche's Hinterwelten. That's, that's what his, uh, his idea was in, in Thus Big Zarathustra. It's the idea of if you run into someone, you don't know they have a backside, but you hold it to be true, right? Same as it's not somebody made, tried to say uh, you can make predictions where the sun will rise tomorrow. No, what we hold to be true, it's self-evident, but it's not guaranteed. We just hold it to be true because of Right? So this is the Hinterwelten, and this is the same idea here, that um, we play a part, we hold these things to be true, and now I've lost my spot. I really did lose my spot. I apologize. Um, wait, hold on. <laughs> okay, I apologize. <clears throat> what I meant by uh, the, the mention of Nietzsche's Hinterwelten is things we take to be true and hold to be self-evident. I mean, we have faith in... We don't know them to be true, but, you know, it's beneficial to hold it to be true, right? Because it'd be problematic to start wondering if, you know, somebody was a cardboard cutout, right? And you just couldn't tell, right? But in this case, it has to do with um, if you're interacting with someone, this is how compassion works. If you're interacting with someone online, it, it behooves you, it benefits you to consider them a human being. Because you'll be more compassionate, more empathetic. You'll be less of a, you know, not always. Uh, I'm, I'm an example of the opposite of that. I tend to be quite, uh, 
and mean online, even knowing they're a human being. Uh, because, as Jung said, says, what you uh, tend to find most troublesome in others is, is what you find most troublesome in yourself. Um, but that's another discussion. <clears throat> so that's what I was getting at. Uh, so what ended up happening with this Xbox Live is people have forgotten they're interacting with another human being. And what seems to have happened in the last few years, and this is what I think was a, a result of masking as well, we lost the in-person empathy of interaction, right? If, if all of existence is relationship, if it's iteration, if, if, if it's interaction with each other, if it's community, if it's connection, if we keep putting in barriers to these connections, is it any wonder that it's caused, well, like I said, a rise in this malaise, this... Um, this issue that you just can't place, is, you know. But I'll go on with the podcast. Um, so, yeah, it's exactly what I said. The disconnection from this iteration, uh, conception of relationship leads to more, uh, well, sadistic or uh, narcissistic behavior. I've mentioned before that I believe that we encourage the opposite of narcissism and encourage... Uh, we discourage the opposite of narcissism and we encourage narcissism, right? Dog-eat-dog sort of world and we want people that are uh, fake it till you make it uh, even if they don't have anything to be uh, uh, cocky about uh, versus openness. I mean, we shun openness, people being honest and authentic and it's just not something we embrace, right? So there's this discussion that, uh, like, are we breeding it in, in other areas as well, right? Simple disconnection from each other. Is that uh, breeding or worsening this sadistic, narcissistic uh, um, perspective we have? Like, that's what I mean by the online toxic, um, vitriolic relationships we all have, right? We hate each other and we fight, and, right? We forget our humanity. And by forgetting... The humanity in others, do we forget our own humanity? I mean, I'm the worst for it. But, so there's the question there. Next up, they mentioned that novelty allows us to resolve surprise or complexity. I love that. Great quote, um, because that's exactly what Carl Jung said. He used his active imagination to where he could leave reason aside to explore sense and nonsense to come up with an answer uh, to even the most complex or even unanswerable. Because it's not the answer, I guess, he was looking for. It was the meaning. It was the context. It was the, the, the sense, the value, right? an understanding, an integration. I mean, this is why they use these words. It's beyond some of these other words we might use. So I call this social synergistic ideation complex. Sick, for short. <laughs> Social synergistic ideation complex. This idea that we produce who we are by what we interact with. Right? If you live in a, an echo chamber, I mean, you're creating exactly what you're there for. So he talks about punitive narratives. I mean, that's the anxiety, that's um, 
self-esteem issues. This is this issue of self-loathing in the West that I've talked about being so bad, right? Or just the non-acceptance of reality that I talked about earlier, uh, where surprise can bleed into the area of um, mental illness, right? If you absolutely refuse to uh, accept your lot, your reality, it it would necessitate uh, you living a fantasy life. I mean, something that came out recently, uh, right? There, there's there's more than one example in our history of people who have lived an entire life of fantasy, never living in reality, right? So this self-organization of the self and the body, and I go one step further and think of it the, the others and their body. So this process, uh, in Buddhism, it's the Sangha, like-minded individuals, right? So it's not fellow Buddhists. It's just other people who are looking to do good works followed by good works, right? Turning, turning towards truth or at least what happens to be the agreement so that we can work towards uh, a goal together, right? Uh, then they go on to talk about how young children will vacillate between states of hot and cold, right? It's this ideation. So they're embodying these experiences to learn, right, uh, black versus white, right? It goes on. Uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, so I well I made a little note that I personally think that this is something we have to understand. This isn't only children. I believe that we can learn from this that even an adult can continue to learn and integrate well into their I don't know later later in life even um, this belief that um, it's just children. So the affect of a child is they only vacillate between states. And that's what they're going to go on to talk about, that at three, they can then share a concrete narrative. But what are you saying? Are you saying they no longer have the ability to vacillate between states? And still ideate who they are, their identity? I argue, I argue it's us that don't realize that it would just take a little more work in this field, a little more mindfulness, a little more focus, awareness, work it like a muscle, and eventually we, just like Carl Jung in his active imagination pursuits, we can vacillate between these states, right? Like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote about good and uh, bad, this idea of if you do get into the pool, you can actually begin to understand that the concept of good versus evil, right versus wrong. These are dumbing down of reality to make more sense. The social synergistic ideation complex that we've agreed that this is good and that's bad. When you get into the muck, you start to see there's a lot more gray. What uh, Carl Jung calls the unity of the opposites, what the Chinese would call the yin and yang, um, this is the tamas, the rajas, and sattva of yoga, that these different uh, um, concepts, these different uh, states, these different energies uh, exist in all of us in different balances. They're in balance. That's our job, is to try to find a balance of these states, of these perceptions, of these feelings. You name it. 
So he go, they go on and talk about they can uh, uh, adopt a shared narrative, they can play together, right? Two become one. That's where I mentioned this idea of uh, the unity of the opposites. Uh, I love to point to the koinonia. That's where right, uh, the father and the son are one. And uh, with the addition of the Holy Ghost, we now become one. Not just man and God, but man and man. We're all one shared truth. Right? Uh, two, oh, that's the chitti matri that I mentioned earlier, this, this mind mother. We all share a mind, a mother, uh, uh, you name it, whatever you want to call it. Right? So, tribalism, uh, very similar idea. Uh, we've talked about that earlier, this idea how um, we share uh, identities, uh, share a reality. And I mentioned they, they share some emotion as well. So this allows us to ideate ourselves, allows us to have more compassion, works on the equanimity, the community, all that jazz. Right? So they mentioned to interact, we must endorse our and each other's fantasy, a shared narrative. They wondered, does this constrain terror? It certainly constrains entropy, or our perception of entropy, at least. Um, I argue, I believe everything is entropy, so that's where I'm coming from, obviously. So they talk about surprise minimization versus a reward system. It's two sides of, of what our goal is. Our goal is to minimize surprise. Expect what's coming down the pike versus reward system. So do we want to be driven by, uh, you know, a path towards a goal or do we just want to be like a slot machine, right? Like do something, you get a reward. Do something, you get a reward. It's a tough one because I've mentioned this before. Psychology of, of the human creature is that uh, we don't tend to track uh, minor changes over time. Uh, we're not the best at it. So that's why we tend to this. I mean, on, on a simpler level, you know, so we go, they go into the dopamine, how it hijacks um, the micro story, anxiety. I argue um, hope is the difference, right? Because you can create whatever micro story you want. As he says, it can uh, make anxiety worse. But if you have a dash of hope, right, that unresolved certainty no micro story absent of hope will will appease right that's why i say you have to see the path forward for these micro stories to carry the gravitas that they require for it to satisfy unresolved certain uncertainty so he calls uh, uh, neuro uh, neuromodulators is, uh, well, that's interesting. So he has this weird theory that our neuromodulators are uh, sensitizing us to these, uh, these incidents, uh, these um, beliefs, saliency. It plays a big part with dopamine and serotonin. I don't know. I think that's a scientist's perspective. I think um, we've evolved, and I think there is no direct connection between meaning and the chemicals that we can see present when we experience meaning, what have you. It's a little more complicated, uh, but there is definitely a connection between dopamine and serotonin and meaning, uh, belief, 
saliency, uh, value, right? So the number one in common uh, well, he just says it's uh, it sensitizes. So between uh, dopamine and serotonin, the number one thing in common, it seems it's just uh, to speak back and forth to each other, it seems, right? To induce um, a reaction. So they ask failures being possible. They said beyond drugs. Um, they mentioned that addiction I mentioned earlier, right? That um, these mess with the systems. I mentioned light trauma. Uh, is this coping? Is it avoidance? It plays into what I mentioned before that I'm... Um, the neurodiversional tend to... The trauma, traumatized tend to avoid uh, some of these states, some of these experiences, some of these truths. Uh, with 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 other behaviors, obviously, uh, <laughs> and that was the next quote. Believe it or not, is a pattern of depressive behavior. We see that in the traumatized. We see that in the neurodivergental. Uh, it's coping. It's avoidance. Uh, doctors have categorized it as a pattern of depressive behavior, right? Rather than seeing it as a one-time event. You see it as a, a lesson, a learning opportunity, that sort of stuff. I call it catastrophizing. Errors unbounded, infiltrated every level. Acceptance of one error will domino to other levels. Right? So this is what they were talking about, this idea of a system. Right? It's a bottom-up when it comes to error uh, parsing. So if we get an error... He says error unbounded. What he means by that is you can't justify it away. You can't, uh, you know, uh, ignore it. This is such a major error that uh, it has to be uh, embraced as such an error. But he says it uh, it dominoes its way up uh, the chain to where it uh, informs us. Uh, so they talk about the three patterns. Oh, I guess I started at uh, a later place. I made a uh, double note here. I apologize. All right, no, it's uh, actually uh, just extra little notes. So depression, they mentioned failure of the error judgment system. I like that idea. I go one step further. I mentioned faith and trust in oneself. Right, like trauma leads to this same failure, right? So in the West, you have this uh, self-loathing uh, affect that is very similar, something that isn't resonant in, in other areas. Uh, so he outlines the whole discussion they had about dopamine and, and that. He wants to put it in his own words. Uh, yeah, so he says the same thing. It's just that uh, the messages go from the bottom up, right? But I would say anxiety fails here, trauma and depression, right? Because you don't know the difference between a failure and, and, uh, and well, you just can't weight them the way you should. Because here they mention the weight of one uh, places...
Oh, sorry, I misread. The weight one places on errors matters to the whole system. So that's what I was getting at. The reason why trauma, anxiety, depression breaks this whole system is you're predisposed to uh, place weight inappropriately, and right, or you'll miss things, or you overreact or underreact, right? So resistance is set by the belief system or the or increased sensitivity, and that's why I mentioned trauma, convictions. All of these can can impact um, this whole process of, of cognition, of intuition, you name it. That's why I argue Buddhism, at its heart, is uh, is a way to manage trauma, to, to overcome trauma, to, to teach critical thinking, right? Uh, because without it, we can't be present or aware, right? So he says our job is just to accumulate evidence for prediction. So we must interact with the world. That's the Kriya, the Karma, uh, value and salience, recalcitrant. Uh, our recalcitrant uh, belief system is missing lessons, right? Because we're stubborn or we're scared. Uh, I mean, it's so common, right? Uh, you have mentioned the acetylcholine. We already went over that. The five... 5-HT2A relation, we didn't mention. Uh, well, we didn't mention some of the other. Uh, so they, they talk about acetylcholine and its importance. They mention dopamine, adrenaline, oxytocin. I would include uh, histamine and cortisol. So many of these play their part, but not just in what they mentioned, play their part in stress, inflammation. Because I believe there's a connection between this serotonin receptor, the 5-HT2A 5 5 and B, uh, have a connection to stress, connection to meaning, to value, all of this that we saw in the Good Friday experiments. That if, if your context is such that something novel, a new experience, you'll say if you're obsessed with Stephen King novels, and you have a novel experience, well, you're going to express it in a very Stephen King sort of way. The example I give you when it comes to a novel experience is, I can't remember who it was, it's either uh, St. Teresa de Avila, uh, Avila or uh, Therese de Lisot, St. Teresa. Either one of them were heavily influenced by romantic uh, poetry and literature when they were young. So when they wrote about their religious experience, uh, they wrote about it in a very, well, childlike, fantastical manner, but definitely in a romantic sort of period. The, um, the Soul is a Crystal Palace, I believe, is one book about this, how she likened these different um, awakenings, understandings, uh, to be very similar to going through these rooms in a beautiful, well, not all beautiful, but uh, going around this uh, immense palace, all the different areas and rooms, right? So, big part, he says, a shared goal uh, is important to progress and essentially is progress, right? A shared goal, working together, both, as I've said before, marriage is important uh, because you're not just growing together as a team, you're also supporting each other to grow independently, 
right? Because again, I mentioned this earlier, we never uh, bring to bear the same person from one moment to the next, right? Because we're either growing or we're, we're uh, reducing, we're atrophying. We're either getting better, um, we're becoming more skillful, more focused, more mindful, more compassionate, or we're getting less so, right? That's literally the way it works. It's a constant ever, uh, like for me, I notice it on my walk. I'll, I mean, I'll vacillate between positive and negative because of just the way I am, right? I don't tend to be, unless I'm very seriously off, I don't tend to be lukewarm, right? You know what I mean? And that seems to be most of us. Right? So he says, the fundamental lesson for progress or reward, we have this entropy reduction. To get closer to certainty is the reduction of uncertainty. I mean, it's as simple as that. That's as simple as that. It really is that quite funny. Uh, it's the lesson of the tetralemma again. So many times have I listened to these discussions online where they're back and forth and they're all upset because they're all trying to find an answer, not just an answer to a question, but in a lot of cases they're looking for an answer they can all agree on. So good luck with that. But the answer to certainty is not, you know answers is reasons it's it's meaning it's value it's the reduction of uncertainty it's it's trust not blind faith but let's be honest right this idea if it's novel how am i supposed to know what the answer is going to be until I work with it some, right? So being more curious and less judgmental. I know I'm overusing that quite a bit. So he says, anxiety is recognizing unresolved certainty. Uncertainty, my apologies. So he mentions again McGilchrist. So this is from his recent book. I'm going to have to go and take a look. Uh, they kind of jumped over it quickly. Uh, they talked about GABA. That's a a whole separate idea. There's there's a few of these neurotransmitters supposedly you can hack to try to make yourself feel a little better. You can get GABA, you can get tryptophan. I don't quote me on these things, but it's this belief that we can aid our our mind by providing it the neurochemicals it needs. And so they go on from GABA. I may have missed the, the discussion specific to GABA, but they go on and talk about the left and right hemisphere. So the left hemisphere being certainty, meaning the right hemisphere being engaged in play and novelty. And so I love that they mention those and surprised, again, because they don't seem to be about trauma, these two gentlemen, even though they should be, right? Because Friston seems to be trying to explain the universe. He really is doing his best. And Peterson seems to be trying to understand his universe and share the journey, obviously, whatever. But what they forget to understand, if you look at trauma theory, one of the most... Okay, so for me, one of these protocols for healing that I use 
is engaging both hemispheres at once. I don't think you can do that, but just, I guess, vacillating between the two hemispheres, keeping them both engaged, if I could say. So I'll use uh, the rings or... Um, uh, well, that's the current uh, protocol that I'm using. Originally, it you know you could use fidget spinners. Um, for me, I was doing um, uh, rubbing my thumb and forefinger together on these fingers, kind of like the mudra, right? Um, but that was to engage both sides of of the brain, both hemispheres, uh, and the science that it's based on. Uh, is using buzzers in both hands because it activates both hemispheres and and it and I guess we're now understanding what's happening here. So by engaging the left and the right, you're allowing certainty and novelty. You're allowing meaning and play. You're allowing the unity of the opposites, as Carl Jung over and over again said, is our absolute goal, right? So I'm just going to jump on from that. That one's a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a mic drop on that one. But they go on and talk about two hemispheres show us a symmetry in our world. They say that, but they didn't mention the importance of bringing them both to bear, attempting attempting to find a balance. But okay, I mean, I do like that they mentioned that because I ask, or does it? Does it bias this to seeing duality? Because we see the left and the right as two hemispheres instead of one complete sphere with different uh, parts, different patterns, different potentiality. It's all about perception and narrative. <laughs> you see what I did there? These gentlemen are teaching narrative theory and yet they don't ever stop, because these are these higher order belief systems, they've been told there's a left and right hemisphere and nothing else shall be discussed. And they don't stop and go, well, wait a minute. What if we were wrong? But So we go on, they talk about embodiment, lateralization. We're starting to get to this understanding that maybe we can find a unity of the opposites, right? Maybe an asymmetry in some things. And some things don't. But So then they mention language lateralization. This supposedly is also related to McGilchrist's new book. I'm going to have to read it. Breath and Hope, Lateralization. Lateralization. It's just a sciencey way of saying, like, apply the principles. So if we understand that reducing anxiety is reducing uncertainty, not finding certainty, because finding certainty tends to bring up more questions. So it just heightens our uncertainty. Managing our uncertainty reduces our anxiety. Lateralization in this case, managing our breath for some reason, since the dawn of time seems to tap into this, science has shown that meditation for, uh, what is it, five to ten minutes can actually reduce our, our, um, our uh, 
inflammatory markers or stress markers in our blood almost immediately. Right? So this lateralization, if we can understand these truths, can we apply it to hope? Right? Young's happy fiction. I don't like it. I don't like it because it's fiction. But if you have trust, that changes the equation. So you don't say, well, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to believe this. And tell yourself that it's fiction. That's not buying in. You have to have trust, commitment, and devotion. Bhakti, as this weekend's uh, class was talking about. Devotion. Utter devotion. Why? Because it doesn't apply. It can't be applied directly or laterally if you don't believe in it. Right? So they go on and mention they're going to talk about psychedelic experience. They don't really go into a great de detail. Uh, they had 30 more minutes on uh, the Daily Wire Plus, which I'm not a subscriber to, so I won't be watching that. Uh, but supposedly they were just going to talk a little bit about uh, Carl Friston, which would be interesting, but I've mentioned this before. Don't look too close at your heroes or you'll just be disappointed. So I love the ideas. Um, I'll, I'll leave the, 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 the rest, right? So they mentioned the five, uh, 5T. Oh, look on here. I said 5H2A. 5T. No, 5-H-T-2-A. Uh, ignore my dyslexia. I'll probably never know today. It's been a long morning. A busy day, too. So they're antagonists. So these psychedelics are antagonists. I like how they jump this because I've said for a long time that I don't think psychedelics are, are the only 5-T or 5-H-T-2-A. 5-H-T-2-A antagonists. I believe things like, um, well, arguably extreme states. That's what they go on to talk about here, right? Extreme states. So like if you go to extreme meditation, really buying in, sweat lodges, um, extreme fasting, vision quests, um, near-death experiences, they say, can be very similar. So they mention that five TH, 5-HT-2A antagonists, so serotonin receptors. So things that um, uh, bond to or uh, interact with uh, the serotonin receptors. They say remediate uh, affected states. So affective states as well. So what it means is is it allows a change of state. I've said that I don't know how many times. It's just a fancy way of saying allows a change of state. So they, they kind of alluded to it earlier when they mentioned these higher order belief um, systems. Uh, have, they're more recalcitrant. Just They're stubborn, right? They don't want to let go of these ideas. So the idea of self is the ultimate. I mean, that's the goal of almost all of this practice. That's... That's my practice, is the nature of self, of being, of consciousness, of self and the other. That's what Carl Jung was involved with. That's what Nietzsche was involved with. That's the Bhagavad Gita, that's the I Ching, that's St. John of the Cross, his ascent of, of Mount Carmel. 
you name it, almost every philosophy boils down to understanding the self and the other. Understanding our environment, you have to understand yourself. I mean, the Greek maxim, know thyself, is, is exactly this. But I go one step further and I say it's know thyself. Three words. Because, and they say these effects of these remediation, so the, the fixing or the changing or the adjustment Abnormal perception has been pers a person's focus, right? It can be ex uh, explained by the changing balance of their value system. So this is what they said. So it just allows oneself, I've said this so many times, to see the potential of something different. If you've been raised, say as a traumatized child, if you've been raised to believe you're worthless and you're stupid and you're dumb and all this jazz, Taking a psychedelic allows oneself to experience a compassion or empathy to the point where you go, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not a total piece of, you know, dung. <laughs> maybe it's possible that, you know, someone could love me. Or maybe it's possible for me to be less reactive or more possible for me to be more, you name it. It's this possibility of potential change, of growth, of ideation in a sense because as Carl Jung said we have within us all of these potentialities good bad male female the shadow self the good self you name it so it's not until we decide what we value what uh, the path that we follow and then we what we embrace this is the teachings of the the Tibetan book of uh, of change of of uh, the liberation of the, in the between states. The real lesson is what dictates our reincarnation is not an attachment to self, but an attachment to the energy we surround ourselves with. So if you're a negative person and you surround yourself with negativity and negative people, if you were me, you'd be surrounded by negativity all the time. That's just cause and effect. Right? So... Some people get so extremely fixed or negative. Or, you know what I'm getting at. Some people get so bad sometimes that it's impossible for them to see anything else. It's like smoking, right? If someone smoked for 30 years, everything in their life has become tied or included with smoking. It's not just the addiction to nicotine. It's the habit of smoking on the way to work or having a smoke with your coffee or you name it. Like for me, it was really surprising to see this. Like smoking, obviously, for me, um, I thought I'd be more bothered by being around people that smoke, right? At the time, I was around uh, um, uh, transport trucks and heavy equipment, so everyone was a smoker. I thought that would be my problem, but it wasn't, actually. It was... It was reprogramming the idea of having a smoke on the way to work or uh, smoke on a break. It was just rewiring that. And believe it or not, the actual, um, the real eureka moment for me was when I realized that I had to recontextualize nicotine. I actually was allowing my narrative theory or these uh, recalcitrant uh, upper level belief systems, the mind believed that I got my nicotine from cigarettes, believe it or not. And as soon as I s literally re 
program myself by just going, well, wait a minute. Holy geez, yes. Like, why do you think your nicotine's coming from? Because it makes you feel so crappy in every other way. It's habit. It's belief system. It's what we attach to. So when I reminded myself, told myself, convinced myself, whatever you want to call it, it was the truth. But I had to come to hold it to be true. That the nicotine came from whatever I chose to get it from. Because the nicotine was the compound that I was actually addicted to. And that's the tough thing to change. But all the other habits, not so much. And literally almost immediately I was able to quit smoking. Uh, and I was vaporizing it for a long time, right? Because that's what I, at the time, was told was the healthiest alternative. Um, and eventually was able to quit um, vaporizing as well. And But I ran into that same problem at the time because I had become to integrate because it took so long to get off of the cigarettes. For me, uh, the vaping, I was nervous to get off of because I didn't want to, you know, recidivism was my worry. And what's interesting is it's never been a concern. I've never wanted to smoke ever since I reprogrammed myself that nicotine comes from somewhere else. Because I'll still have, uh, not so much really anymore, but I would still have cravings for nicotine even years after. But it was for nicotine. So it, the body didn't care where it came from. Lozenges, uh, the gum, a patch... Uh, the body would have taken almost anything but not smoking, right? I mean, I guess if I had been super stressed and super um, low, um, low willed, I might have maybe considered taking a puff off a cigarette or a vape or something like that. But that's not even something that's become part like when I smell a cigarette, it, and people say that, but it's not the anti-smoker in me, it's the fact that it's like, ooh, I don't relate the nicotine to the smoke, I relate smoking to smoking. I mean, it's very similar to cannabis because as a person with HS, you don't want to be smoking anything because of just the way smoking works and the effect it has on the body and all this jazz. You should be vaporizing your cannabis. But then when I found out that you get much more of the active ingredients through vaporizing than you would uh, smoking it. And I was shocked that anyone still smokes. But I've known people that still smoke their cannabis and there are scientists that understand the difference and they even realize that this is just stuck in their brain, that they get their medicine from their cannabis or whatever you'd want to call it, their, they get their cannabis from the smoking, so they're not satisfied, even if they're getting more of the active ingredients, what have you, or like in my case, less body load from the smoking, but my body still wanted the smoking, even though I think you get less than the nicotine and it makes you feel like crap, your body still thought, well, that's where it comes from, because I've seen people still to this day, they need to smoke their cannabis, right? Because... For them, that's where it comes from. And I think it's simply narrative theory. Because, And I mentioned this the other day that it's really sad because uh, um, Dr. Gabriel Mate's book, um, the criticism that I've mentioned, right, is, is his understanding of some of these, uh, uh, what would you call it, um, 
uh, diversity, inclusion, uh, and equity. It, it's a little problematic how they're implementing some of it. But the, the real criticism that I'm surprised that I didn't see, because again, I've read most of all the books and I'm learning to develop my own healing. The biggest criticism that I didn't even realize is that he talks about all of these issues that one might have with trauma, with, um, uh, with life, with, uh, with addiction, with uh, ADHD or um, a narcissistic parent. I mean, you name it. It's the same subject. It's meaning value in a world that is, is inherently um, um, you know, unfriendly. <laughs> But, so, oh, sorry. Yeah, so the, the thing that I never noticed was the criticism that he never shares how to heal this stuff. And I just took a course this week, and they explained this, right? It was actually about trauma, so I'm surprised that he doesn't put it in his books, because he doesn't. And this course began, opened with that the worst that someone can do is just reading about their traumas and, their, and these you know, these problems, leading themselves to think that they're doing something about it, but they're not. And worse yet would be maybe some of these books that don't share on how to heal some of these problems. Because yet, he really doesn't share in the book how to begin healing these traumas. And and there's two camps here, because I took, like I said, a course, and it opens with the truth that, yes, learning about the subconscious, learning about your traumas, is eye-opening, it is transformative, and it is very helpful. But it's just one step towards becoming a full and, and whole and healed person. Because without the protocol, without practice, without doing something, without that action that we talked about earlier, without whatever you'd want to call it, right? Um, you know, if it's positivity, if it's... I mean, you can know that of what you need to do and never, ever do it. Right? So that's the danger here. Because you can actually replace one negative habit with another and never actually see the, the benefit, as it were. You know what I mean. So this change of state allows one to see other possibilities other possible outcomes or solutions, right? It's what I talk about with Carl Jung. It's, so many of us are expecting just a, you know, a, a peaceful, painless transition between good and bad. Like if we've been suffering for a long time, how dare you think this is going to be easy, right? So I talk about Carl Jung's uh, statement that really to, to, to blaze these new paths, we need to leave reason aside uh, to use sense and nonsense to navigate uh, this novelty, whatever it may be, right? Psychedelics just being one of many options, right? So their theory is uh, they reduce the high level versus the low level, making everything interesting, right? I argue one step further. I, I say that psychedelics make the easy stuff hard and the hard stuff easy. And it's the same idea, though. It's just... Um, changing the narrative, it's flipping the script, as they say, and some people, and I argue, the neurodiversional, the tra traumatized, uh, these individuals have a much easier time uh, with a flexible narrative, because every day, our narrative 
arguably broken or very flexible, right? Because I mentioned that, right? Uh, like the spectrum or like overconfidence, this adaptability, right? So in this mention of like three times can cause a warning uh, for us to rethink. But I always point, because your next point is that open people are more creative. Well, that's where dyslexia becomes a power because we're actually reinforcing the fact that we have to be more conscious and curious and careful because our mind is constantly giving us, feeding us, um, you know, maybe erroneous uh, information signals. Right? So unlike most people, we can't base on errors like others. So it tends to maybe breed a, a situation where we're more comfortable in this idea of sense and nonsense, right? So we're more able to rethink, right? That's why I think there's a big move to employ the neurodiversional because they have so much potential in creativity and understanding. And, and I mentioned the psychedelics, meaning, creativity, but it all can ties back up into Nietzsche, right? Because if psychedelics just allow us to develop into who we are, this is all creativity, right? We're creating ourselves. If that's your meaning, by all means, right? So they mentioned psilocybin and that anyone that takes psilocybin has a full 1x deviation in openness, meaning, I mean, they're a whole one times more open than another. There's no confusing that, for some reason, psilocybin makes people more open, more, well, like I said, the opposite of a narcissist. And this is a permanent change, right? And they mention not, not an increase of, of anxiety, but that's a problem because it depends on dose, right? Everything's dose-dependent. Uh, you actually can increase someone's anxiety, which is something we need to study, right? So that's why I point to these serotonin uh, receptors are definitely tied to anxiety. And that's why I found it interesting when he mentioned that they were, because it really does seem as such when, so this is why I recommend you see microdosing in two different camps, right? Microdosing for creativity is one thing. How about it? But microdosing for trauma is a big deal because if you give someone a, a low enough dose that doesn't activate the HD2A, the serotonin receptor, so not the God receptor as we call it, it only activates the HDT1A. It can actually make their anxiety so much worse. And I wonder if that plays into the whole suicidal ideation in, in um, antidepressants, if it's similar. Uh, but we have to be careful, right? But they're just talking about that there's something, there's something else in there that... Uh, that opens us up to alternative theorems. Uh, it's an openness that goes beyond what they're looking at currently, right? It's not, it's not just the chemical that's doing this, and it's not just the receptors. It's, um, it's literally, I think, opening a potential in 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 us, in a human being, is what it is. I think it's it's deeper than what we can prove. I think a psychedelic is a shortcut to opening up this HD2A 
serotonin receptor, something we could do with uh, fasting, with vision quest, with deep meditation, with holographic, holotropic breathing. Um, it's something we can do ourselves, but psychedelics are a shortcut. But it's not just turning on the HT2A. It's the turning uh, or you know whatever it's doing to the HT2A receptor is actually kind of like a cascade effect. By having that one uh, ramped open, as it were, is causing something else to happen in the body. That, And I argue that it's something innate to us, something that we may not, maybe not now, but may never be able to prove what it is. But I don't believe it's as simple as the neurotransmitters or as simple as the uh, psychedelic compounds or as simple as anything that we can we can touch uh, empirically or even uh, uh, theoretically. I believe it's something beyond our own understanding. But go on here. The change in state is similar to dyslexia. Is why it causes us to rethink, like Ruben's vase. Because the example I use is if you've ever seen Ruben's vase, the first time you saw an optical illusion. You saw what you saw, as in neurotypical. They'll usually see either vases or faces. But it's not until you tell the neurotypical that, oh, no, no, it's also faces. Then they see both pictures. But I argue the dyslexic's already there. Because for most dyslexics, they see both at the same time. In fact, another example is that picture that's floating around where it says it tells you all about your person. Do you see a mermaid or do you see... What was the other thing? Oh, uh, a donkey's face. Well, I'm sorry, I see the donkey. I see what they're saying is this could be a mermaid, but I mean, I see a seal, right? So that's the dyslexic. They see it all. And they just choose what to see. Well, that's narrative theory. Right there, right? There is no absolute answer. What you see is what you see. And you choose to see. But the difference in being open to these potentialities is not fixating on just one of the choices. Right? So I say, uh, the dyslexic sees it always as both, whereas the neurotraditional uh, uh, sees or is shown one or the opposite to their view. And I, I explained it already, how... A neurotypical will see either the faces uh, or the vases or, you know. So they need to rethink of their perceptions. Hmm, so that's it. I said, um, foolish, and then we ignore the, the, uh, the air, right? Show us what we do not see and we open our eyes to see the possible and so i've talked about it in a previous podcast how weird it is that right we can uh, we can be shown an optical illusion and we don't mistrust our eyesight but for some reason we we tend to mistrust our intuition because it is you know often uh, fallible but i mean what isn't Right. So they talk about the free energy landscape, 
Uh, well, they didn't really mention much. They mentioned about um, old negative thinking, bad is bad self modeling, uh, creativity about other ways of being me. Yeah, well, that's all obvious. We already talked about that. I mean, that's how you would, I call that ego recontextualization. That's exactly it. I mean, when you learn that who it is you are as you changes from moment to moment, it makes it a lot easier if you truly buy in, right? Right, so less novelty up the chain. Uh, they mentioned someone called uh, Carhart Harris who does research with Friston. I'm also going to have to look him up and do some reading on him, but I can't have anything to mention today. Uh, so they say uh, narratives leave you open uh, to realign your narratives. And so arguably, I guess, your ultimate narrative should be what I've said before, right? Be more curious and less judgmental. Right? When it comes to seeing multiple images in, in, a, in a drawing, be open to other opportunities, other potentials, right? Because, I've said this before, but there was a great philosopher and uh, uh, autodidact by the name of Charles Sanders Pierce. And his quote uh, is, the first rule of logic is doubt. And I add, with confidence and commitment. Oh, yes, and I also, don't forget, uh, they also saw in researching uh, economics that uh, some of the greatest forecasters are those with intense doubt, uh, particularly in their own predictions, right? So if you really, truly want to predict the future, this is how it all ties it up. If you really, truly want to predict the future, if you want to make the best uh, predicted predictive matrix, the mind... If you want to make yourself the best predictor, is always a sense of doubt. I mean, um, an example would be those different uh, pictures that look, can look like different things, right? Just always keep in mind that it may be this picture, maybe there's more, right? So that's uh, the takeaway, right? Always have a good sense of doubt. But uh, yeah, so that's that on. Uh, Carl Friston and uh, Jordan Peterson really, uh, really do, really do like uh, Carl Friston. I even like him even more now that he, he's mentioned these ideas of uh, of meaning and narrative because I've said it in other podcasts. That's what I started to get away reading some of these other trauma books, uh, psychology. It seems to be the takeaway, the most important lesson here is narrative theory, right? That's how we manage trauma. That's how we manage our everyday. That's how we manage the imposter syndrome. You name it. I mean, I mentioned this, I think, recently about, uh, right, how common the imposter syndrome is. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? That's why uh, experts are just as fallible as a, as a noob, uh, mainly because if they don't keep a good sense of doubt... Right, If they start to think they're perfect, I mean, I quote it all the time, Bruce Lee said, always keep in mind, no matter how good you are, there always could be someone better. Right? So, yeah, stay humble. <laughs>